This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn, and I'll tell you, the past week has been a very interesting week for me. One week ago, I released a podcast called Do Orthodox Men Respect Women? It was number 10 in the Orthodox Conundrum series. And in that podcast, I described an experience that my daughter Tali had. Tali's 17 years old, and she tries whenever possible to daven tefillah b'tzibor. She tries to daven with minyan, and she has found that, not infrequently, she doesn't feel welcome because there are men in the Ezrat Nashim, either learning there or doing something else, and they don't understand that when a woman comes in, they are required to leave, or that they must be quiet. I described how I don't think being quiet is enough. They should vacate it immediately. Or even better, they shouldn't be there when the minyan starts. As soon as Bincha comes, they shouldn't even be there because women might show up, see them in there, and turn around and go home. People have told me that's happened to them. They don't feel comfortable kicking people out, so they just turn around. So men shouldn't be there in the first place. This is what I talked about last week. And the reason the week has been so interesting is because I've received a lot of comment about this podcast. A lot of people wrote to me to tell me that they think that I'm right, they think that I'm wrong. They think I didn't go far enough. They think I went way too far, and so on and so forth. In that podcast, for example, I talked about Chovavei Torah and their approach, which is not my approach. Some people questioned why that's not my approach. What's wrong with it? Other people said, how dare I even consider them an orthodox school? How dare I even consider their approach an orthodox approach? There's a lot of talk, and that's exactly what this podcast is about. Because I want the orthodox conundrum not to be me sitting here and telling you what I think. Obviously, that's going to be part of it. But ultimately, I want this to be a conversation. I don't claim to have all the answers. I don't claim to know all the issues. I certainly don't claim any sort of special knowledge that anyone else doesn't have. What I want people to do, and what happened this week, which is why I'm happy, is to contact me. Let me know what you think. Do you agree with what I said? Do you disagree? Why do you disagree? How do you agree? What other issues do we need to address that I haven't talked about? What other issues is the Orthodox community doing well that we need to strengthen and that we should encourage? And not only talk to me, share this podcast. Let's open up the conversation so that more people can be involved. Last week, I put this podcast up on a terrific Facebook group called God Save Us From Your Opinion, which is a group with about 19,000 members founded by my student, Akiva Weisinger, who now lives in Seattle and is starting an interesting new project called Misfit Torah. Hopefully very soon on this podcast, we'll have him as a guest to describe this new initiative. But in any case, God Save Us From Your Opinion is a place where people really talk about serious issues in Torah Judaism, things that need work, questions, and so on and so forth. And I put it up there, and it really sparked an interesting conversation. I was part of the conversation at the beginning, eventually, I got out because these groups can sometimes suck you in such that you do nothing but comment and respond. So I decided eventually, after some time, that it's time to move on to other things. I like the fact that there's a conversation. I like the fact that we're honest about Judaism. I like the fact that we're honest about what the Orthodox community is and what it's not. Too often, I believe in the Orthodox community, things go in either extreme. On the one hand, you have some people who say, tear down the whole structure, the whole thing is rotten. It's racist, it's misogynist, it's oppressive. That's one side. Then you have other people who say the Orthodox community is absolutely perfect. 
maybe there's a problem or two, but our problems are so small compared to what they could be. We should be extremely proud of what we've accomplished. We must be extremely proud of how wonderful and great our community is. And let's not talk about the problems. Let's revel in how wonderful Orthodox life is. This podcast wants to avoid both extremes. What I want to do over here is work from within the community. Orthodox Judaism is my community. This is the community that I love. It's the community of which I'm a part. And because of that, I don't want to shy away from its faults. I don't want to pretend that everything's perfect when things are far from perfect. And I also don't want to pretend that things that are good are not good. The things that need encouraging should be encouraged and furthered. This podcast, The Orthodox Conundrum, is going to try from within, from within the community of Orthodox Judaism, to talk about what it is and what it should be. Because if we have amazing ideals, and we do have amazing ideals, this community is a Torah community predicated on God's Torah. If we are going to allow that to become a reality, to make it manifest in our world, we have to make sure we know when it's not working, when we do things that are not according to what the Torah wants, when we are doing things that fall short of the ideals that we wish we were keeping. So this podcast is designed to work from within, not to tear down, and not to look at it with rose-colored spectacles. Our job is to look at it honestly. Honestly and realistically, to fix those things that need fixing, to spark conversation when there's conversation that needs to be had, and to encourage those things that are going well and try and change those things that are going less than well. So I encourage you and ask you, please write to me. Scott at JewishCoffeeHouse.com S-C-O-T-T at jewishcoffeehouse.com. And that way we can continue this conversation, we can keep it going, and we can talk about the things that really need to be discussed. That means if there's something I say that you disagree with or agree with, let me know. If there's a conversation that we need to have that I haven't talked about, let me know. We'll put it on the air. And that's actually what this episode of the Orthodox Conundrum is about today. I want to talk about some of the responses I received from various people, people who agreed with me, people who disagreed, and give my opinion about it. Remember, I don't pretend that I know everything. I don't pretend that I have all the answers. I'm not saying that everyone who disagreed with me is wrong. In fact, some of them have some very good points. But let's talk about them a little bit and keep this conversation going about women in the Ezrat Nashim, women being welcomed into shul, and so on and so forth. Before I read these various responses, let me make one more point, which is that I am male, and inevitably, when I describe these issues, I find myself talking more often to men than to women. Partially that's because it's not my place to tell women how they should feel. A lot of the time I'm just telling men how I think they should act towards women so that women don't feel a certain way. This might be what they call mansplaining. It might be inaccurate. It is far from my place to tell women how they should feel. I can only describe what I, as an Orthodox Jewish man, feel that men should do in order to alleviate some of the problems that I see through the eyes of my daughter that some Orthodox Jewish women are experiencing. Let me start off by reading something, which I'm going to essentially paraphrase. So if you are the one who wrote this, and you say that's not my exact words, I was transcribing some of the recordings I received. There are voice messages and the like, so I'm not pretending this is word for word, but hopefully I'll get the gist of it. Of course, I'm going to keep these anonymous as well. One person said, 
I agree in general, but where we disagree is where you said that it's indicative of a larger issue of respect. Let's stick to the serious modern orthodox YU type and more open-minded Haredi type. I don't know if there's any community or culture in the world that has more respect for women than us. There's no field in our community that women feel they can't jump into. Women are respected and not objectified in our community. Nothing is closed off as long as it's within the confines of halacha. So to make it a larger issue doesn't make sense because of what we see about our culture. And I don't think it's about respect, but instead sensitivity because of the unfortunate cultural norm that women don't come to daven during the week. I understand that we need to improve our sensitivity, but I don't think it reflects a larger lack of respect. The person who said this to me is a good friend, an amazing, upstanding human being. And I really, really appreciate him as a person, and I appreciate his opinions. As it comes over here, I have to say there's some things about this that I disagree with. When he said that I don't know if there's any community or culture in the world that has more respect for women than modern Orthodox, YU Orthodox, open-minded Haredi Orthodox. Look, this, that's an opinion, and he might be right because it really is subjective to declare that. Personally, I'm not quite sure that I identify with that attitude. I think that while our community does have respect for women, I don't think that it necessarily goes as far as he would like it to go. I can't really talk about that too much, however, because that's really coming down to an opinion rather than anything else. I can't, I can't prove it. The fact that we have women who are doctors and women who are lawyers and that our community is willing to go to women who are doctors and lawyers and all the professions is, is true as far as it goes in general. I'm not sure that makes us ahead of the curve in terms of the rest of Western culture. That's something for someone else to decide. I think a real response to this comes from something that somebody else said to me I'm going to read this directly. This is actually a verbatim quote from another message I got on Facebook. I think the answer to his issue really comes from this. I heard your latest Orthodox Conundrum podcast, and the attitude you describe precisely was what turned me off from Orthodoxy 30 years ago. There was no Chovave back then, and after being kicked out from the Ezrat Nashim so men could pray there, they felt it was too cramped in their space. So myself and two other women were cordially asked to leave since we have no chiyuv. And seeing a man yell to his wife, quote, bring the kogel on the double, and another berating his in front of complete strangers for challah that was a little burnt, I found my place with conservative Judaism, which was not back then what it is now. I just wanted to share and to thank you for bringing up an issue that I think is very serious indeed. The reason I think this relates to the first person's comment is whether or not we're the most respectful community towards women is one issue. The fact is that the way things are currently, and admittedly this was 30 years ago, but I think that same attitude does pervade our system nowadays as well. Someone here, and I'm sure this person is not alone, was turned off from orthodoxy. And part of the problem is that it's not only about how much respect we have for women, but the perception that we don't have respect for women. Now, as I said last time, I'm not suggesting that we change halacha. That's not where I am. That's not what I believe. But if halacha does not allow for women to take on leadership positions in the synagogue, 
in order for women not to feel like second-class citizens, we have to go over and beyond what we normally would do in order to make them feel welcome in the areas that they are allowed to be and which they are permitted and encouraged to be. It's not enough just to say we're respectful of them. We have to be doubly careful to make sure they experience that respect because when they don't, they might leave. And maybe they have a right to leave. And I don't blame this woman for leaving. I don't agree with it. But if I were in her shoes, I don't know what I would do. If I believed that Orthodox Judaism were biased against me and that Orthodox Jews, if I believed that they didn't respect me because of my gender or anything else, I would be very, very troubled. And that's how she felt. So therefore, even if it's a matter, as he says, of sensitivity versus respect, that may be true. Perhaps I was wrong to say this is true that men in Orthodox Judaism don't respect women enough. Perhaps that's way too sweeping. But as long as we lack the sensitivity to be extra careful, the same problem exists. That same problem exists. You know, somebody else wrote to me in a related matter that the halachic system is inherently not equal. No one can deny that. As halachic Jews, we say that's the system, we accept it. But women cannot lead the prayer service in the same way that man can. So this person was saying that as long as that's true, and this person is an Orthodox Jew as well, as long as that's true, it's not just that Orthodox Jews will not live up to the ideals of Orthodox Judaism. Orthodox Judaism itself makes it inevitable that this will happen. So I'm not necessarily agreeing with that. I think that's going pretty far. That's a strong, strong statement. But we have to keep it in mind that if we don't want that to be true, if we don't believe that inequality or lack of respect is inevitable, and we say, no, 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 the system is perfect as it is, it's the way it's being implemented, then we have to be extra, extra careful to make sure it's implemented properly, leading up to the highest ideals that we can. We can't say, the system is great, the people who do it aren't so great. We as people in the system, as long as we say the system is right, we're not going to change the system, we have to bend over backwards to make sure that we are as respectful as possible. Let me read another comment that somebody sent me. There definitely is a disrespect on the part of men regarding the women's side. On the other hand, I'd compare it to an accessible bathroom that I use when I get there and no one else is using it. Too many women don't go, so men think it's empty anyway. Here's another comment along the same vein. Our shul doesn't have enough seats in general. In the morning, especially in the winter when it rains and men bring their tefillin and coats, there is almost no way for everyone to fit, certainly not comfortably. And women simply don't come to Shachrit in our community. So men often sit in the large women's section so that they don't have to stand without a seat. Perhaps once a month, a woman comes to Shachrit, and when she does, all the men leave the women's section immediately. Your suggestion that men never sit there seems to be not in accord with reality. And these are strong points. And as I said, I don't pretend to have all the answers or that all my solutions are right. And last week, what I said was, men should not be in there at all so that when women come, they don't have to kick anybody out or feel uncomfortable to ask them to go out. So I accept that perhaps I went too far. But on the other hand, on the other hand, the question is, why don't women come in the morning to Shacharit? We're assuming that they don't come and therefore the men can go into the women's section. But perhaps they would come more often or more would come if they knew that it would be empty. It's hard to know which comes first. 
a shul needs to balance reality with the ideal. Perhaps in this particular situation, where the men's section is too small for the men and the women's section is too large considering how many women come to Shachrit in the morning, perhaps the shul should build a smaller women's section. Now I know funds are not easy to come by. I'm not saying they have to build a brand new shul, but they can put a curtain up allowing for 10, 15, 20 seats. If one woman comes once a month, if you make 10 seats available every single morning, you've also allowed the other 50 or whatever it is seats in the women's section to be used by men while at the same time not forcing women to kick those men out. I think you have to balance the reality that fewer women are coming than men in the morning and therefore to have two equal sections of the exact same size when you have a limited amount of space and a limited amount of money, that may not be fair either. But there are other solutions. And let's say that this shul starts to encourage women to come and they make a smaller women's section on Shabbat when there are more women, you take down that extra curtain and then women sit in the entire women's section. During the week when almost no women come, you make a smaller women's section, put up a curtain. And if more women start to come, wonderful. Then you make that section even larger. And if then more start to come, maybe at some point you have to think about building a shul that will accommodate everybody. But in the interim, there might be ways of making both work out. Another comment I received was this. Men come home from work and learn of the Ezrat Nashim from 6.30 to 8.30. The fact that Mincha and Marv take place in the middle is exactly why they're in the Ezrat Nashim. So where are they supposed to learn? And my answer to that is, not in shul, I'm sorry. If they're not willing to learn in the men's section, then they shouldn't be learning in the women's section during Mincha and Marv. I don't think this has much, uh, calls much water. This complaint is saying that, well, where else should they learn except for the women's section? At home? A local Beit Midrash? Anywhere else? Ah, but they want to go to a shul so they can have that feel of learning, have that experience of being in a community when they learn. Great! During Menchan Marv, you can't do that. You can't always get everything that you want. The Rolling Stones said it first. It's true for Judaism too. We do the best we can, but we can't always get everything. You can't learn the women's section during Menchan Marv. They shouldn't have to kick you out. Here's another comment I received specifically about the shul in which I daven and that I was talking about originally with my daughter Tali. The person writes, and I paraphrase, that I disagree about what you said. That room, he's talking about the Ezrat Nashim, was never an Ezrat Nashim except for Shabbos. And really, even Shabbos morning and Shabbos afternoon, there are rarely any women. So it's possible that it does not have the halachic status of an Ezrat Nashim. If there were a bris in the afternoon and they rented out the social hall, which is the Ezrat Nashim as well, what would your daughter have done then? It's not like every single shul has an Ezrat Nashim that's open all week long. It needs to be made clear whether it's a full-blown Ezrat Nashim, which means they can't rent it out during Mincha. And people are caught off guard when someone comes to the Ezrat Nashim because it's rare for a girl to daven B'tzibor. Okay, so I guess the shul has to make a policy. Is it a social hall? Or is it an Ezrat Nashim? Meaning, is it really just a shul for men with no space for women? And this is a social hall? And should a woman show up, they will allow it to be used as an Ezrat Nashim? It happens to be, I spoke to the Gabai of the shul, as I mentioned last week, and he told me that, of course, it says Rat Nashim. Okay, let's assume there's an argument among those people who work in the shul, who are part of the shul, about whether or not it's a social hall that can be used as an Ezrat Nashim, or it's an Ezrat Nashim that can be used as a social hall. But let's say, for the sake of argument, that this person who sent this question is correct, that it's a social hall, and only an Ezrat Nashim secondarily. I think it's time that our shuls stop doing that. 
I don't think we can have that anymore, that something is not an Ezrat Nashim. You can't have a shul without an Ezrat Nashim because that's inherently perpetuating the exact problem I mentioned earlier. If this is a social hall and there is no Ezrat Nashim, that's exactly the problem. A shul must make men and women feel equally welcome. That's the attitude I earlier said we must adjust. We have to bend over backwards that both men and women feel equally comfortable in shul, even if men take on the leadership positions in the public tzibor davening. And if a shul does not have an Ezrat Nashim, they are making a very big statement. As I mentioned, this must be balanced with reality. It doesn't mean, as someone suggested, that every shul must have an Ezrat Nashim that's just as large as the men's section. I wish that were true. I also know that people have minimal space. Shuls don't have all the money in the world. They might have room only to make a room for 60 people. And let's say 50 men come and two women come. So are they really going to make 30 and 30 and not have enough room? I don't think that's fair either. If they can make it bigger, make it bigger. But life requires compromise and you have to also acquiesce and admit that reality isn't always so neat and easy and clean. But not having an Israel Nashim at all, not having a women's section and it's only a social hall and should a woman show up, will allow her to dive in there, I think the attitude has to change. So if that is true in a shul, I guess the shul can't be held accountable because on one level, they are saying it's not an Ezra Nashim, but that fundamentally is the issue. Secondarily, even if that's true in this particular shul, even if that's true in this particular shul, I would say that in that situation, you have to take a portable mechitza and make a small section at the back of the men's section into a woman's section. Let's say, for example, they're renting out the social hall slash Ezrat Nashim for a bris. Okay, so what are you going to do? Don't just say there is no Ezrat Nashim today. You make another wall, a portable curtain or that sort of thing, so that a row of the men's section can become an Ezrat Nashim, so that when my daughter or anybody else comes, they don't have to ask for someone to set something up or say, what should I do, or turn around and dive in at home. They can say, oh, there's always going to be some Ezrat Nashim for them. That's what I would say. I have another comment over here. Um, this is somebody who is actually a musmach of Yeshivat Chovavet Torah. And he quoted me correctly as saying that a woman should not participate in the service in any way. And I said that apparently at 9.08 in the last podcast, nine minutes, eight seconds. And now taking what he said to me, he wrote this to me. I am an individual who generally takes what people say at face value. I am not a big fan of lavdafka, which means not literally. Therefore, I am taking you at your word that women do not have to participate in a davening service in any way. Perhaps you meant to say that women are ineligible to lead parts of the service. That's not what you said, though. So let me stop him right there. Absolutely. I misspoke and did not mean to say women do not participate in the davening service. What I really meant was that women do not lead the service. Absolutely, I agree. Women should participate in the service. He then continues with something else, which I'm not quite sure I agree with. I will read it. He says, Perhaps we have different approaches to the purpose of women being in shul. What I get from your comment, as well as subsequent statements in the podcast, that the primary purpose of women being in shul is for their own betterment, to get some schar, reward, for answering Amen to Kaddish, or responding to Baruch and Kedusha, etc. My approach is different. I hold that although women are ineligible to count for a minion, they do comprise part of the tzibor, and that tefillah b'tzibor with women present is qualitatively different for all participants than when women are not present. So my question to you is, do you suppose that when you say women have to be not participating in the service in any way, 
that perhaps the attitude you conveyed is part of the problem. This is an interesting question. Is it true that a minion with women in it is qualitatively different than a minion without women in it? And I don't have an easy answer to this because on the one hand, I certainly think that women participating in tefillah, admittedly not leading it, but participating is a wonderful thing. And the whole idea of kol Yisrael Arefim we are all responsible for one another. The idea that I pray for somebody else, he or she prays for me, this is all an integral part of the experience of prayer. And therefore, more people praying, be they men or women, that will enhance davening qualitatively. So I certainly agree with that. On the other hand, to say that the minyan, as a minyan, is lacking something, that somehow the tzibor is less a tzibor if women are not there, he quotes an al-sheikh to prove this from Megillat Esther, and it's a very interesting source. I have to say that I don't agree with his reading of the source. I don't think that source was talking actually about minyan. It sounds to me it's more talking about different people davening for each other rather than everyone sitting in the same room and being part of the same tzibor in a tefillah tzibor sense. So I think the source he gave me, which is not even a halachic source per se, is dealing with the need for different members of the community to pray for each other, rather than the technical concept of Sefi Sibor. And this is a podcast, not a shiur, so I'm not going to get into the details over here. My understanding of Minyan, of Tzibor, is more informed by what Rav Salavechik Zetzal says about it, where he describes a Minyan, that means 10 men, as being a metaphysical entity, almost a microcosm, of Knesset Israel as a whole, a microcosm of the congregation of Israel that transcends time or space. In a certain sense, when there's a minyan present, all of Am Yisrael of all time is on some level present at the same time. And if that's true, a minyan is just as good if it's 10 men or 1,000 men or 10 men and 10 women. It doesn't matter. Once it has the halakhic categorization of a tzibor, it's a tzibor, and whether or not there are more men there or more women there is irrelevant to that classification. Now, there's also a concept of berov am hadrat melech. With more people, there's greater glory to the king, to Hashem. And in that sense, absolutely, more people being there adds the minyan. And as I said, having women there also certainly adds the minyan. I don't deny that one bit. As a technical sense, though, is that really something which is necessary for the minyan to be all that it can be? And if a woman doesn't come to the minyan, the minyan isn't as complete? I'm not sure I would agree with that. All this being said, the point is well taken. And certainly, as the father of a girl who davens in a minyan whenever she can, I certainly encourage this attitude. And I think it requires more research whether what he says is halachically a reality on an emotional reality, though I can't disagree with him, and it's a point which I, which I appreciate. And I have one final point that I want to make today, and it's coming from a completely different perspective, and I will also say, before I say this final point, I did not address every single comment that I received. So I'm just trying to get sort of a, a, a general feeling of what people said and give a taste of some of these ideas. The last point comes from a very different perspective. This one is coming from the perspective that it really is, on some level, also the fault of women. Meaning, women don't often come to daven during the week in many communities. And as a result of that, it's their own fault if I can make a sweeping statement. If women were more careful to come, then there'd be larger women's sections. Men would be more cognizant of this. So while men should certainly be sensitive and have the respect to vacate the Ezra Nashim before Mincha or Marav or Shacharit, 
at the same time, if women were more careful to come and daven b'tzibor, in that case, there'd be more reason for men to realize this. Now, that's an interesting point. And I don't want to start blaming womankind on this podcast. I don't think that will get me very far, and I don't agree with it. I do think, however, that there is an important idea here, and that is we should be more careful about encouraging tefillah b'tzibor. Even if a woman does not make the tzibor more whole, even if a woman is not part of the minyan per se, nevertheless, as I said last week, her davening b'tzibor is a very important thing, perhaps as the previous questioner said, for the whole tzibor, and certainly for the women who are there. My daughter Mi'ira next year is actually going to a seminary. She'll be 19 next year. This year she's in Shirut Lumi National Service. I asked her last week, as we were talking about this issue, said, how does it work in terms of davening in the morning? And she said, they have on the official schedule that it's davening by yourself. It says that you daven by yourself. It doesn't have any official minyan. And I certainly am not criticizing the seminary. I used to run yeshiva myself, and I know there are many factors involved. So the last thing I want to do is say they're wrong. So this is not to criticize. It is, however, to ask an interesting question. Wouldn't it be good, wouldn't it be a positive thing if this seminary encouraged its students to daven b'tzibor, to pray with a minyan? Perhaps they could have 10 men there and have a minyan in the seminary for the women who are there. Perhaps there's a local minyan. This is a seminary in Jerusalem. Perhaps there's a local minyan and they could encourage the women in the seminary to pray b'tzibor, to say, it's important that you do this. You have no chiyuv, you're not required to pray in a minyan, but why not? In fact, you have every reason that you should pray in a minyan. I think this is an important point. I think that women themselves should be encouraged in seminaries and our schools to pray b'tzibor. It's a good thing. And while they are allowed to pray by themselves, it's certainly better if they pray with a minyan. And later on in their lives, it might be more difficult. There are times in their life it's difficult, and the fact that they don't have a chiyuv, the fact they don't have an obligation to pray b'tzibor, can be helpful for them. I was talking to my wife, Elisa, about this, and when I said that I think women should be encouraged to daven a minyan, she didn't necessarily agree with me. She said the fact that when I would go to shul on a Shabbos morning and she was home with the kids, which is the way it was in Shabbos morning in our house when our kids were younger. The fact that she had no obligation to go and perhaps wasn't even encouraged to go, she understands that's a good thing to go, but she didn't feel that pressure that she has to go. It made it easier for her in a very positive way. It enhanced her Shabbat. So I hear that side. It's very possible. But certainly for somebody who's going to be 19 years old next year, wouldn't it be great if the seminary said, you may daven b'yechidut, but we encourage you to daven b'tzibor. If more women would daven b'tzibor, perhaps some of these problems would be eliminated on their own. I don't think, for example, on Shabbat morning, in most synagogues, the women's section has to be vacated from men. I don't think men have to be kicked out because they know women are going to pray here. If that would happen every day, that would be great for Am Yisrael. It would be a great thing. Look, ultimately, all of this is about increasing our sensitivity. And to the degree that it reflects a lack of respect, we have to inculcate that respect as well. It doesn't matter if it's an actual lack of respect or just a wrong impression, because even if it's wrong, we have a job to do. We can't let a wrong impression take root. 
And if it's real, it's even worse. In Masachar Avot, Perak Bet, Mishnah Aleph, we have a Mishnah which says, Rebbe Omer, Ezuhi derech yisharash yavor lo hadam. What is the upright path a person should choose? Kol jehi tiferet lo seha, v'tiferet lo min hadam. Anything that gives him glory to the one who does it, and glory from other people. In other words, the way things appear, the way other people see us, the fact that we can be glorified for what we do, that other people appreciate what we're doing, is an important part, an important part of the way we live our lives. Now, as I said earlier, my job here is to start or further a conversation not to pontificate. Don't get me wrong. I, I like to pontificate. It's, it's a lot of fun. But that's not what this podcast is really about. I want to get a conversation going. I want this to be a continuing discussion. So please continue to write in. Again, let me know your stories. Scott, S-C-O-T-T at JewishCoffeeHouse.com. And let's keep sharing this podcast. This conversation can be heard and joined by an ever wider circle of people who need to hear this. If we care about orthodoxy, we need this conversation about this issue and other issues. We need to acknowledge what we do right. We need to acknowledge what we're doing wrong. When there's hypocrisy, we must call it out. Because if we don't, we're the hypocrites. Our job isn't to defend orthodoxy, it's to perfect orthodoxy. So keep it coming, let's get the word out. I'm personally tired of reading how great we are. That's good for Kirov. It's good for making people religious. But once you're inside, once you're already committed to our truth, once you're committed to Torah, our job is to see reality as it is and to fix it. You know, one final point. We say that God's seal is truth. And at the same time, we say that truth is not the highest value. The whole series of laws on Lashon Hara is predicated on the idea that just because something is true doesn't mean it should be said. So how do we balance this? God's seal is truth, but there are values higher than truth. For the sake of shalom, for the sake of peace, we don't tell the truth. Rashi points out in Parsha Fayera that God himself didn't tell the truth to Avraham in order to preserve peace between Avraham and Sarah. So if God's seal is truth, how can God not tell the truth? And at least one answer to this is the following. When we're talking about two different entities, two people, two communities, in that situation, when you're talking about the other, when you're describing it to somebody else, you accentuate the positive. You don't have to tell the truth. If I'm talking to another person about somebody else, I'm not going to necessarily tell the truth. If that truth is derogatory, I'm going to say good things. But when we're inside, when we're part of the same community, if you're looking at yourself, if you're looking at yourself, then you have to be honest. We have to look at our own community and tell the truth. We have to look at ourselves and tell the truth. From inside, our job is not to tell us how great we are. From inside, Within this community, within ourselves, we must do cheshbon hanefesh and tell the truth. In here, God's seal is truth is a high value. God's seal is truth is a higher value than making us feel good. We have to tell the truth. We have to keep it going. Let's keep it going, everybody. Thank you for joining me once again. I'll see you next time on the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>